My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at ACF. And last week, if you weren't here, we started a brand new series for a brand new semester, a brand new decade, uh, and we're calling this series God Is. And this is a series where for the next couple of weeks, we'll, we're going to be exploring different attributes of God's nature, different aspects of who God is. And so, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me now to the book of Judges. That's where we're going to be spending our time here today. If you need a Bible raise your hand and uh, there will be some folks coming around with these hardback Bibles and they can get one of these to you. Uh, and you're, if you're following along with us in these Bibles, we're on page 205. We're in Judges chapter 6 and uh, we'll get to that passage in just a few moments. As you're turning there, let me just also remind you that to my left in the back over there, we have a, a panel of boards uh, to your right that we're using for our worship service for the course of this series. And um, we're encouraging every one of of you to stop by the board either before or after service at any time during this series and uh, just go ahead and jot down, write down. It could be a single word. It could be a series of words, uh, but who God is to you. We want to engage in worship in perhaps a different way than just singing and listening to a message. Uh, we want to we engage in worship in, in a slightly different way. And so stop by the board. We want to fill that board up by the end of the series. And as you stop by, I encourage you, take a look around. See what your brothers and sisters are declaring of God for, for who God is to them and let it stir in you sort of a spirit of worship and we'd love for you to do that, engage with us in that way. So with that said, we're going to look at an Old Testament story today in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 6. Now, if you were here with us last week, you, you'll remember that we talked about this, this dynamic that showed up in the Old Testament over and over again, but, but it's a pattern that showed up not just in the Old Testament, but also it shows up in our present day lives. Even in your own personal lives, my personal life, this pattern shows up time and time again, and the pattern goes as follows. God calls his people to follow a certain way, and people decide that their ways are better, and so they forsake God. God's ways, and then trouble comes upon them, right? And then in the midst of their troubles, they cry out to God for help. God, out of his infinite mercy and grace, extend help, deliver the people of God, and, they, and they're called back to follow God's ways. And so I have a, a, a quick little diagram here that, that displays this real simply. So the people of God enter into sort of, upon hearing the call of God, they decide, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. Disobedience, they, they enter into disobedience and say, you know what? God, I'm good. I'm going to chart my own way forward. Then disaster comes upon them. Now, this disaster could be brought on by God. This disaster could be something that is natural consequences that are brought on, but nonetheless, disaster besets the people of God. In their moment of disaster, in the encountering this disaster, they move into a season of distress. And in their distress, they cry out to God for help. Deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. God, again, because of his good nature, and who he is, being be infinitely merciful and gracious, God delivers them. God extends a hand of deliverance. Now, God delivers them, but the people of God become a little bit comfortable in their ways, and then they fall back into disobedience, and thus goes the cycle over and over and over again. How many of you have found yourself in this cycle before? Amen? Right? Like I know I have. As I walk with Jesus and as I try to follow God and his commands and his ways and his ordinances, this cycle is ever present in my life and it was for the people of the Bible. In today's story, 
We're going to look at a point in the time of the people of God where they find themselves in the moment of distress. They're in this moment of distress. They've disobeyed God. Disaster has come upon them, and now they are crying out to God in their moments of distress. And in today's story, we're going to find God raising up a man by the name of Gideon who will be used by God to deliver the people of God out of their distress. And so look with me at Judges chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 1. We'll put the text up here on the screen as well if you'd like to look along with us that way. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, but go ahead and open up to whatever version you have and read along with us. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, we don't know who exactly this prophet was, but we know what he said. He goes on and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. We're going to continue on, but let me just pause here for a quick second. So, you get the gist of what's going on here, right? You, you see the pattern that we just talked about just a few moments ago, right? Like God is saying, I've called you to live in a certain way. I've called you to live according to my ways. And I've even helped you along the way. Right? I've delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and I've given you all of your enemies into your hands. But somewhere along the line, you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten about my call to live in, in, in my ways. And you've chosen to go your own way and this is where it's led you. But God is infinitely merciful, he's infinitely gracious, and he's not willing to allow his people to remain in distress. And so what does he do? He raises up an unlikely candidate to be Israel's deliverer. And in verse 11, we're introduced to this guy by the name of Gideon. If we read on, it says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? 
Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. We're going to stop it right there for now. Friends, as we come to the second installment of the series, I'd like to talk to you today about the sovereignty of God. And in similar fashion to last week's title, this week's title is Overly Simple, Terribly Unoriginal, but Deeply True, and that is God is Sovereign. And that's our big idea for today. That is all we're talking about today. God is sovereign. Last week we talked about how God is holy. Today I'd like to talk to you about how God is sovereign. Now, when we say the word sovereign, what in the world are we talking about here? What does it mean to be sovereign? Well, the word sovereign, let me just give you a working definition here. The word sovereign means all-powerful, in control, authoritative to the extent of overriding any other powers or authorities. This definition is derived from, from John Piper, a good reformed theologian, pastor, talking about the sovereignty of God. He says, the sovereignty of God, the, the word sovereign means to be all-powerful, in control, authoritative to the extent of overriding any other power or authorities. That's what the word sovereign means. That's what we're talking about when we say sovereign. So when, when we talk about God being sovereign, and we use this adjective and attach it to God, and we say God is sovereign, here's essentially what we're saying. God is in control. He calls the shots, and nothing can stop him. In plain, simple language, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, God being sovereign, here's essentially what we're saying. At the end of the day, God is sovereign means this, that God is in control, he calls the shots, and there's nothing that can stop him. Now, for some of us, when we hear that, that might cause us to freak out a bit internally, that someone other than myself could possibly be in control of my life, calling the shots for my life, and there ain't nothing I can do to stop that. Right? Like, there's like, I, I like being in the driver's seat of my life. I'm not sure that I want to relinquish that. And so, and so there's, there, for some of us, we hear that God is in control. He calls the shots, and he, nothing can stop him. We're like, whoa. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I want to follow a God like that. But let me, let me remind you of something critically, so vastly important. We've got to understand, friends, that the sovereignty of God is governed by the wisdom of God. The sovereignty of God is governed by the wisdom of God. You see, God is not sovereign only. God is sovereign amongst many other things. And so when we talk about, you know, the, the, these, these attributes of God, similar to how we're doing for the series, right? Every week, we're looking at a single attribute of God. Friends, it is critically important that we not isolate that single attribute from the larger whole of who God is, his whole character. And so when it comes to the sovereignty of God. We've got to remember the wisdom of God is what governs and, and works tandem with the sovereignty of God. In other words, here's what you need to hear. God is not careless. God is not casual about his decisions. 
God is not sloppy or wasteful with his thoughts. He is not nonchalant or flippant about his decisions and choices. Rather, God is supremely and infinitely purposeful, highly intentional behind every single decision that he makes. Friends, there's always a reason behind the things that God does. God doesn't just... Look, if, if it were any other way, if God were careless, if God were like, meh, whatever, you know, like I, I just feel like doing this today, I feel like doing that today, and, and he just, he holds all the power, but he's sort of nonchalant and flippant about his choices. Friends, I would say to you, we have good reason to be terrified. If God is all powerful, and the way he operates in our lives is, well, whatever, <laughs> Maybe today I'll bless you. Maybe tomorrow I'll curse you. I don't know. I'll just feel it out. However the wind blows, right? However my Holy Spirit blows. No, no, no. But that's not how God operates. That is not who God is. God's, God's sovereignty is ultimately governed by his divine wisdom. Isaiah 55, you know this, right? His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts. His divine wisdom is what governs and influences his sovereignty. The fact that he is in control calling the shots for our lives. Now, look, there's probably a ton more that I can say on that. I could probably spend another next, the next couple of hours talking about the sovereignty of God. But we're going to move on for now. And, and, and let me suggest this. When we look at the story of Gideon, when we look at the story of Gideon, we find that the sovereignty of God, though, though that word sovereign is never mentioned in the story, it is colored throughout the entire narrative. And I want to point out today, I just want to point out two huge implications Two massive implications of God's sovereignty on our lives using Gideon's story. The first is this. We discover that God sees things that we don't always see. When it comes to God's sovereignty, we discover that God sees things that we don't always see. And so much of our faith journey, how many of you know, brothers and sisters, that so much of our faith journey is about following a sovereign God who sees things that we don't always see. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but the first introduction that we have to Gideon in verse 11 is where we find Gideon beating out wheat in a wine press. Verse 11, right? That's what we see. Gideon, we're introduced to this guy, Gideon. He, what is he doing? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, at first glance, you might think, okay, so what's the big deal? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Well, you got to understand, in the ancient Mediterranean world, there were these places called the threshing floor. And these threshing floors were these places where you would thresh grains of wheat. You would beat out wheat at these places to separate the crops from the chaff, the grains of wheat from the chaff. And because of this particular task, this separating of the grain and the chaff, these threshing floors were typically located in position in high open plains where gusts of winds would blow to blow away the chaff. That's where you would find these threshing floors. By contrast, on the other hand, wine presses were located in low, dark, hidden type places. You wouldn't find gusts of wind blowing in wine presses because they were largely tucked away and hidden. Topographically speaking, these two places were on the opposite ends of the spectrum. One high and open, the other low and hidden. And so here in verse 11, we find Gideon doing something he should be doing out in the open in the dark. 
hiding. Why? What's in the text? He was afraid. It's because he was afraid and he was in fear of the Midianites. He's living in fear and he's scared out of his mind in this moment. And I want you to keep that picture of cowardice in mind with that sort of cowardice picture in mind. Notice how the angel comes to him and greets him in the very next verse. In verse 12, the angel comes to Gideon and he says to him, The Lord is with you, get this, O mighty man of valor. Now, some of your translations might read, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Or, or the Lord is with you, mighty hero. Now, Gideon's probably thinking here in this moment what you and I are probably thinking in this moment. Mighty man of valor? I, look, the dude's hiding in fear. Who threshes wheat in a wine press? A coward who's hiding from his enemies. That's who, that's who would be beating wheat in a wine press, not a mighty man of valor. In fact, you look at this and there's nothing heroic or warrior-like about what Gideon is doing here. In fact, later on, you'll begin to see the way Gideon sees himself. In verse 15, he says things like, how can I save Israel? He's talking to the Lord. He's like, me? How can I save Israel? He's like, look, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. He says, it's like my clan's the smallest. I I don't, even have the, I don't even have the manpower to overcome the Midianites. What are you talking about? And me, you coming to me, I am the least in my family. Translation, Gideon is saying, God, sorry to tell you, buddy, but you got the wrong guy. I don't know who you think you're calling a mighty man of valor, but it ain't me. But friends, here's the thing about God's sovereignty. He sees things in us that we don't always see in ourselves. There's an old story, a, a fable of sorts, about two water pots. I, I came across this story long, long ago. I don't remember where I heard it, but the story goes like this. Maybe you're familiar with the story. A water bearer in India had, had two large water pots, both on opposite ends of a pole that he carried water in, back and forth from the stream to his house. To, water for, to, to have water in his home. Now, one of the pots had a crack in it, while the other was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water. And at the end of the long walk from the stream to the house, the cracked pot always arrived just half full. The poor cracked pot was ashamed of its own imperfection and miserable that it was not able to accomplish what it was intended to do. What it was intended to make, what it was made to do. And so after two years of what it perceived to be a bitter failure, it speaks to the water bearer on the, uh, one day by the stream. One day by the stream, the, the cracked pot says to the water bearer, water bearer, I am ashamed of myself and I want to apologize to you. I have been able to deliver only half of my load because this crack in my side causes water to leak out all the way back to your house. Because of my flaws... You have to do all of this work, and you don't get the full value from your efforts. I apologize. The water bearer turns to the cracked pot and says, Pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? That's because I've always known about your flaw. And I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day while we walk back, you've watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate the table with. 
Without you being just the way you are, there would not be this beauty to grace the house. Friends, I would suggest to you today that God sees things in you that you don't always see in yourself. I don't know what you see when you look yourself in the mirror. When you look yourself in the mirror, I don't know, maybe, maybe you see the failures and the shortcomings of your life, all the ways that you miss the mark. Maybe when you look at yourself in the mirror, I don't know, maybe you see the brokenness of your past. Maybe you see the fear and anxiety that cripple you on a daily basis. Maybe you see the glaring insecurities that shape and form every social interaction that you have. I don't know, maybe when you look yourself in the mirror, what you see is the mistakes of your past that you try to forget, but they stare you right back in the face in that moment. And what you see on a day-to-day basis just might be the picture of one who is beating out wheat in a wine press. But church, you got to hear me when I say this. When God looks at you, he sees something fundamentally different. When he looks at you, he sees a mighty man, a mighty woman of valor. The question then becomes, are you going to continue to live out of your sense of reality? Or are you going to align your life with kingdom truths? Are you going to allow the circumstances of your life to dictate the destiny of your life? Or are you going to allow the voice of God to shape and influence your core identity in which you begin to live your life out of? Because you want to know what God says about you? Here's what he says about you. He says, you're not flawed. No, no, no. Rather, you're a grand masterpiece crafted by the very hands of God. That's what Ephesians 2 says about us, that we are crafted by the very hands of God. God says, you're not a mistake. People, I don't make mistakes. He says, no, 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 I hemmed you together in your mother's womb. That's Psalm 139. He says, I hemmed you together into your mother's womb to make you into a wonderful creation. You're not hopelessly unlovable, no. You are already, before you even do anything for me, you are already a deeply beloved child of God. You are not captive to your past sins and mistakes, no, rather, you've been completely set free from them. That's what Galatians 5 tells us. You're not who you once were. For some of us, we gotta say amen to that because our old selves, our old man, our old nature, Oh, man, I, we, we would love to divorce that part of who we are. No, you are not who you once were. The Bible tells us that you are now being made into a brand new creation. You're not a person of fear or dismay. You're a mighty person of great valor. This is who you are because this is who your creator has created you to be. And it's because of God's supreme sovereignty that he sees things in you that you don't always see in yourself. But not only that, here's a second implication that I want us to see here. God's sovereignty also shows us that God's got it so we don't have to. And this should be good news for all of us, that God's got it so we don't have to. That's the second thing that Gideon's story shows us, is that when God's got it, we don't have to. Did you notice what the angel said to Gideon right before he was called out as a mighty man of valor? In verse 12, did you catch that? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, 
Notice the angel doesn't mince his words. The angel doesn't stutter over or trip over his words. The angel seems pretty definitive here, pretty darn confident. The Lord is with you. Now Gideon, on the other hand, his confidence level is a little shaky. Gideon responds by saying in verse 13, Gideon says, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And come on, if the Lord is with us, where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers talked about in the past? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But look, look at our condition, God. Look at where we are, God. Now God has forsaken us and he's abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Church, can I be honest with you this morning? I meet with a lot of students and I met with a lot of people over the course of my ministry career who have sat down across the table for me and have said things along these lines. Pastor, tell me this. If God is so good, why in the world is this happening to me? Why am I facing this unbearable hardship in my life? Pastor, tell me this. If God is on my side, why do I feel like he's nowhere to be found? Heck, I feel like he is straight up against me. Pastor, tell me this. How am I supposed to reconcile what I'm going through right now Compared to what you're telling me the Bible says, the Bible says this is who God is. I don't understand. Help me understand this. I've sat across the table from a lot of Gideons who are having a Judges 6.13 kind of moment. God is with us. What gives? Why does my life look like this? You see, friends, what they're experiencing in that moment, and maybe you've been there too before, What they're experiencing in that moment is what Gideon and many others in the Bible experienced time and time again, and that is a crisis of faith. It's a crisis of faith. You see, church, at some point in our journey, we're going to be faced with questions like, do I really believe what God says is true? There are going to be moments in our faith journey that you have, to, you have to wrestle questions like this to the ground. Do I really believe what God says about himself is true? Do I trust his character and who he says about himself and who he is? Am I going to cling to my current situation or am I going to choose to believe that God is looking at my situation fundamentally differently than the way I'm looking at it? That somehow, perhaps... In some alternate universe that God has a purpose in the midst of this crisis. And here's the amazing promise that that I keep coming back to, not just in my own life, but as I study scripture, I see this over and over and over again. In fact, I see this as I talk with other people who have gone through moments like this. If you don't bail in that moment of crisis, but rather you walk through the crisis you don't run away from the crisis you don't walk away you don't flee from the crisis but rather you walk through the crisis friends i promise you what you will find more often than not is god is in the crisis and doing some of his best work in the crisis and look i'm not trying to be like well let's just put everything into a positive spin no no you look over and over again scripture some of god's best work is in those moments of, 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 of anguish and distress and it's like, God, please, I, I want to know you're here, but I just don't see you. If, all, if, if God is with us, then why is all this happening to us? Friends, what you've got to understand is what God is doing in that moment of crisis of faith is he is growing and expanding and breathing life into your faith.
You might not know it, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's forming you into a person of deep, big, audacious faith. That's what God is doing in that moment of crisis. You ever wonder how Gideon went from Judges 6 to Hebrews 11? You know that Gideon is, is found, is mentioned in the famous Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11, where he's recognized amongst the top greats of the people of faith in Scripture. You ever wonder how he went from the, his crisis moment of faith to being then inducted into the Hall of Faith? How does that happen? It's because Gideon chose to walk through the crisis of faith to allow God to expand his faith and it was that very faith that led him to believe that if God's got it I don't have to if God's got it I certainly don't have to I love what the Lord says to Gideon in verse 16 did you catch that at the very end the last verse of today's passage that we read the Lord said to him but I will be with you I'll be with you and listen to the promise here, and you shall, not you might, not I hope, not just maybe, 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 but you shall, you will, without a doubt, strike the Midianites as one man. That is the sovereignty of God in full display right there. What God is saying here is, Gideon, I'm in control. I call the shots, and there ain't nothing that can stop me. I will be with you, and you will undoubtedly strike down the Midianites as one man. I love that he includes as one man. It's like, for God, this is simple. Striking down one man, that's, he could snap a finger and he can do that. But Gideon, you gotta remember, Gideon, earlier in the passage, he said the, these Midianites came in and ravaging the town like locusts, like the, the massive nature, and God's like, I know what you see when you look out there. When you see the Midianites out there, you see a massive army who is insurmountable. But God's like, no, 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 no. But you got to understand, I'm sovereign. I am in control of all things. I call the shots and there's nothing that can stop me. So if I'm with you, I promise you, the Midianites is going to be like one man to you. I love the simplicity of that. I love the power in that. That's the sovereignty of God in full display. I will be with you and you will you will. You see, the sovereignty of God is painted all over the pages of Scripture. I could have gone to so many different places. I mean, you see it in the life of Moses. You see it in the life of Joseph and how the sovereignty of God developed from Joseph to being, from being sold into slavery, right, by his own brothers to rising up in power, Right, like you see all of this play, take place. You see the sovereignty of God all over scripture, all over the, the, the prophets like Jonah, Habakkuk. Like, you see the stories of God unfold through this lens of God's sovereignty. In fact, if you continue to read on in, in Gideon's story, and I, friends, I would encourage you to do that this week. I, I, I so wish I can, I can, I can continue on in, in Gideon's story because it just gets crazier and crazier. I mean, you, want, you think this is a crisis of faith. I mean, he's, he faces multiple crises of faith where God just continues to grow and expand his faith. And guess what Gideon does? He never bails. He never bails. He says, God, if you're calling me to this, I'm in. I'm in. And yeah, sure, he vacillated back and forth like doubting you know, struggling with that is, I'm, I'm not saying there's no room for doubt, there's no room for wrestling, but, but Gideon didn't bail. He didn't bail. He said, I'm in this, I'm with you, God, because if you've got it, I don't have to got it, right? If you got it, I can be sure of that. But even here in the opening acts of Gideon's story, 
Whether it's, we see that God sees things vastly differently than the way we see things, whether it's things about ourselves or situations. And friends, this isn't just a message of like, hey, feel good about yourself, like boost your self-esteem, like that's why God sees things in you differently than, than, than the way you see things. No, 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 it's not just about yourself, it's also about your situations. A lot of us don't struggle with identity issues, a lot of us struggle with circumstantial issues. We look at our circumstances of life and then all of a sudden our lives get flipped upside down. Our faith gets tumbled. Our, our, our theology becomes informed by our circumstances rather than by this. Our understanding of who God is and how he operates is highly influenced and formed and developed by the circumstances of our lives. And so maybe, maybe the word for you today is God sees things differently than you do when it comes not to your identity but your circumstances as well. And as it pertains to your circumstances, you got to understand If God's got it, Colossians 1 is actually true that God, through Jesus, is holding all of the universe together, including your life and my life. If God is holding it all together, I don't have to. I don't have to hold it all together. And that, to me, friends, is such good news. Because I know I don't want to be in control of my life. I've been there. It hasn't gone well. But in those moments where I can say, God, I submit to your sovereignty, I submit to your sovereign will, I find myself at most peace. That is the best place I can find myself. 